You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 164. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, Excited for today's guest, which is Anne Griffin. We're going to talk about career and product management and AI and blockchain. And so it's going to be a really fun discussion. And yeah, so without further ado, my next guest is a leader in product management, a startup advisor, and a subject matter expert in AI, blockchain, tech ethics, and product inclusivity. And Griffin, you have reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here today. And um, you know, I love your podcast. I love the subject subjects that you talk about on your podcast. I especially love the recent episode that Charlie recommended to me about kind of our current and or future kind of financial crash. And yeah, I think you go, you talk about a lot of really interesting things in tech and economics and innovation. And so I'm really happy to be here today. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I didn't even know that you listen to some of the podcast. Um, you know, I sus- I always know that sometimes I get a little bit into territory where I know that uh, uh, some of my guests like wouldn't agree with me. And I'm like, would people still come on my show? But then people do. So it's okay. Uh, but um, it's I, I, I really appreciate you like that. And um, I know, well, you're coming on because we spoke recently on Charlie Oliver's podcast. I Is it still cost? Is it still called Tech 2025? I think she might have changed the name of it. It's called uh, fast forward. Fast it, forward, it a, right? The, so it's fast forward, and it's the Tech Twenty Twenty Five podcast, but the name is actually Fast Forward. Right. So oh, gotcha. if you haven't yet, please go listen to that podcast. Yeah, is that out yet? The conversation we had about Clubhouse. The conversation we had about Clubhouse is not out yet, but there are other really great episodes. Okay, um, I'm. It will right almost certainly be up by the time this episode goes out. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's definitely like Clubhouse is really big. We had a really good discussion about what's going on in the world of, of audio and the world of startups. And, you know, I think that, um, I mean, that's the kind of discussion I like having here. Um, and, you know, I looked at your bio and I was like, whoa, Anna's really smart. And she talks about all the things I talk about on the show. So let's have her on. <laughs> and so, I was uh, like, yes, I'm so excited. And I was really just mostly, I was like, I'm going to get to nerd out. This is great. Yeah. So, um, what is it that you, you do exactly? So you're like my day job right now is I'm just like a software engineer. Basically I'm writing code. Well, I have kind of a special role at the company, but, but like, what, what would you say you do on your day to day? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a product manager in my nine to five, In my five to nine, I do a lot of other things, but I've been in technology for over a decade. I studied industrial and operations engineering, but still had to, I still had to learn C++ as part of my engineering education. So, uh, you know, it really actually lended itself into being a product manager of like having the technical background, being able to understand, you know, what the engineers go through and kind of some of these concepts that they're talking about, but also one of the things about industrial and operations engineering is you focus a lot on like optimizing things and um, cause it's more focused. It's not completely, but focused on like manufacturing and making things more efficient. And when you start thinking about product managers have to have some project management skills, you start thinking about how do you make things more efficient and run smoother? Um, some, some of that comes in. And so um, it makes it a lot easier to focus on the actual product management when you're easily able to like organize things in a way that they just kind of run themselves. But yeah, so yeah, I, I was, I was like, organization so, is key sometimes. I find. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like my, we my have a lot of trouble with that on my team sometimes. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah. my nine to so, five. Um, what is that 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 you're doing with, um, I, I know you said you're doing something in terms of, you know, helping people, not necessarily with their resumes exactly, but to attract the right kind of, uh, of companies in their jobs. And I have a long history of very annoying interactions with recruiters. Um, so I'd like to know, you know, what, because, you know, you might think, oh, it's great. A lot of recruiters are after you, but like, I never, I rarely get something good out of it. Um, what, what would you say is the what are you doing there? And what would you say is the problem? 
Yeah. So I run this course called Attract Your Dream Job, and it is it is focused on on people of color, but really it's called Attract Your Dream Job, really more so because I have gotten pretty good at getting recruiters to come to me with very relevant experience. And for those, and I didn't go too deep into it in my intro, but one of the things that um, you know I do work with is um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and most recently even taught um, over the last summer at Columbia University, a pre-college course about applications of AI as part of like an AI and blockchain course. And the thing is, is about like, Five, six years ago, I was I was in tech, I was doing product management, and I was like, you know, AI, machine learning, I was like, I, I really think these are going to be a lot more prevalent in everything that we're seeing. I could see, you know, how far along Google and Facebook were with that and saw how far behind everyone else was. And Charlie, um, that's actually how I found Tech 2025 is because Charlie was one of the few people talking about this in terms that people could actually understand. And so I was like, okay. And I started learning more, more about this. And I updated my LinkedIn to talk about, these are my interests, not lying about my experience. Just saying, these are my interests. Like I'm really interested in AI machine learning. Here are the books I'm reading about it. Here are the like courses I want to take. Didn't lie about any of my experience, but it was like very beginning of my journey into emerging technology. And I had this recruiter from eBay reach out to me for a product manager role that was a product manager of machine learning. And I said, that's literally exactly what I want to do. So I said, yeah, let's have a conversation. And one of the things I asked this recruiter, because I was like, this is too perfect. Like, how, how did this person find me? I said, so how did you find me? I said, I typed in product manager, machine learning, New York City. You were the second person to come up. And I was like, Wow. Okay. So I'm clearly doing something right. And between like, I've worked with great career coaches, have really great mentors, and also I've done some things, experiments on my own time. And I've gotten really good at attracting opportunities that are really great fits for me. Like I haven't, I haven't actually been looking for a job during this pandemic, but just during the pandemic alone, some of like the names that you would recognize that have actually reached out to me for roles that I would actually be interested in are like uh, Twitter's reached out, uh, Facebook's reached out several times. Um, Amazon's reached out. Uh, DoorDash has reached out. The the list goes on on and on. Like Vimeo, um, several others, Dropbox, and they're all for roles that I was like, "This sounds really cool. I definitely want to talk to you." And I'll say, like, I'm also in a position where I'm not necessarily like in a position where I'm like, "Yes, I'm going to definitely move on." Right, I'm going to move right now. But it's something where I was like, "Oh, this is great," because even though I'm not necessarily going to take on these roles. I'm like, I'm interested in hearing more about what this is or getting, starting a conversation with some of these companies because, you know, things can change. So, and again, if anyone from my job is listening, uh, I'm not going anywhere, but just be aware that I am <laughs> a, a hot commodity. Uh, but so this is something where, you know, I, I teach this to others because what I notice is when we talk about job searches, there's a lot of talk about, oh, do your resume like this, or, you know, this is your LinkedIn review, but there's not really a talk about the strategy of why those things work. And we do talk about some of the outbound strategies, but this is one of the few things that I've seen really period that talks about your inbound strategies, right? Like if you have kind of basically a job search SEO or inbound traffic strategy, it saves you a lot of time and stress, especially if you can don't have to actually look for your next job, right? Your next job comes to you. Yeah, so I, I feel like you know you, you saw these jobs coming in. You're like, this great, this is what I want. I think a lot of people have problems, you know, just taking a step back and asking them like, what do you want? Like, don't don't you get a lot of people who are like, well, what do you want to do? And they're like, I don't know, I don't know what there is, you know. So how how did is that something that you can help people with as well? Yeah, that's actually the first part of the course, and we call it finding your north your north star, right? Because especially when we talk oh, about product management, that's good pro- because I did not know that when I asked the question. The, the answer, yeah, you actually set that like, up. Nope, I don't do that. <laughs> you set that up perfectly because my thing is nothing I tell anybody is going to matter. It's not going to be helpful if you don't have a north star. If you're trying to be a product manager and a software developer right. and a UX designer. Um, the, the recruiters won't understand what you do. And they spend about three seconds looking at your LinkedIn profile and then they move on to somebody that they can actually understand 
what the heck does that person do, right? So that's that's actually the very first thing right. we we teach in the course because we get people with these muddled things and LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn doesn't just look and see, you know, oh, that person has this one keyword. LinkedIn is actually also giving recruiters a score of how quote unquote relevant you are based on the skills you have. So it's not just like, oh, they had one keyword, we're gonna throw it in there. LinkedIn is also saying this many of the keywords and things that this person posts about actually overlap. And so the thing is, that's why you need to really be able to focus on something. You need to understand your North Star because otherwise, you know, again, you can put all the keywords and everything else, you know, in your LinkedIn, your resume, do all this others, do all this networking. But if you don't have a North Star, no one's going to really understand what is the heck you do. And no one's just shopping around for employees that they don't really understand what they can can do with. You have to be able to sell yourself and tell a story. And oftentimes that story is being told about you before you actually even get to have a conversation. Like your LinkedIn is the beginning of that story. Hmm. What do you tell people who are constantly, uh, you know, uh, um, contacted by recruiters who want them to do the same job that they're doing now somewhere else, but they're basically like, well, I want a new job because I want to do something different than what I'm doing now. Are we talking about more of like seniority or we're talking about more of like this person is doing a career pivot? Yeah. Like, so basically if you want to do a career pivot, um, recruiters will reach out to you, um, with, well, you know, uh, recruiters will, will try to push you into doing what you've already done just because it's probably an easier sell for them to the company. Yeah. So two things. What I always tell all of my students is to always write and talk about yourself in the context of where you're going. Your whole LinkedIn should be written in that context. Um, your How you talk about yourself in interviews should be like talked about in that context. It should not just be like, here is like a history book of like, here's a bunch of, I would say history textbook. Because I think there are some great books written about history, but like there's the lack of context where it just feels like this chronological order of this, then this, and this. And so if your LinkedIn tells the story of, yeah, they have that experience, but it's written in a way that they can kind of see, oh, that's where that person's going. They can kind of see maybe this isn't a fit or if they reach out, they'll kind of at least understand. The other second, the second part is, and this is where we like people in tech, at least for me, I never learned sales skills. I I only recently acquired sales skills. And one of the things is, um, you know, if somebody reached out to you, great. So now you have an in. So now this is where you say, you know, I'm not interested in that. But if you have roles like this, then I would be happy to talk to you. Because if they do have a role that is specific to that, then now you actually have an in knowing that like, oh, this role just opened up. It's not posted yet. Or maybe it's posted and you didn't see it. Or maybe you didn't know about this company. So you never even saw what was posted here, right? If you don't ask. So it'd be kind of be like, you just turn it around on them and ask them for what you actually want since they're already in your inbox and taking up your time. Yeah. So how does this, how does this course work? Uh, Like who is it a, um, is like an online course in the evenings or something? How does one sign up for it? Yeah. So it's a four week live small group coaching program. It's like once a week on Wednesdays at 7 PM Eastern. Uh, each class is like an hour and a half to two hours, which might sound like a really long time, but the material is actually less than one hour. It's really the questions and conversations that happen from that material that really expand it because everyone's really learning together and everyone is at different points in their career where I have people where they're like, I've been working at the same company for 11 years. And then I have people where like they're mid-level, they've been at their current company for two years and they're like, I'm getting out because it's toxic. Right. So it's, it's that once a week thing and we just do it live on zoom and then record for people to like rewatch. Cool. Yeah. I, 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 I'm thinking more in terms of like, I'll, I'll, I'll send a link. I'm not sure. Um, you know, it can people get it on their, on your website? I'll, I will send it. Yes. I'll put it on the link for the show notes page. Yeah. This. So you um, can go to, you can go to attractdreamjob.com and that will take you to my page. I'm in the process of updating some things, but that's where you can find my information now, attractdreamjob.com. All right, cool. So, uh, great, great. I'll I encourage people to check that out. Um, uh, so machine learning, uh, you are, uh, what's been your kind of experience, uh, in the, in the, 
uh, I hate the word the ML space, but I'm about to say it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, What's so mine, mine is really, you know, is a combination of classes I've taken combined with working with machine learning engineers in some of my jobs um, combined with, you know, do, like the research I've done and also doing talks and, and teaching about it. Right. And also in the context of a, a product manager and, you know, because for me, because I, again, my first language, I learned C++. So it makes everything else really easy. So for me, when I was really interested in the space, I was like, let me take some classes, learn how to do this, um, understand what's, how this works, not just conceptually, but like get some hands-on experience. Right. Um, and then getting to work with like engineers in the context of being a product manager. And again, having, having a background originally in engineering, gives me a bit of a different perspective than just someone who's maybe coming in from a non-technical space, but also being someone where, you know, the, the product manager is always interested in the why. And also I'm someone who's always interested in like product inclusivity and product ethics or just like tech ethics is also thinking about like, you know, it's really great. We can build this model, but like, what does this mean for the people, right? There's a lot of good things that can happen, but also how might this be turned around and can, be accidentally, you know, how could that accidentally harm people? Or maybe how can this be abused, right? There's somebody, um, I don't remember her last name. Her name's Ava. She actually does really amazing research on like people who actually used um, scenarios where, you know, technology has actually been used in domestic um, abuse. And so that's some of the, so those are some of the things that like I research that I talk about. Um, specifically, I also will just talk about like, AI applications in general and like how specifically, like what are the problems they're trying to solve and like why AI is the best tool for those specific scenarios to solve those problems. Yeah. So, so I, I want to dive into both those questions. Like I, I think the first one is uh, just the question of why, which uh, in a particular context is well, why are we building this? Should we be building this? Not from an ethics pr perspective, maybe just from like um, a, a, a business or resource usage perspective like is this just something is this just a, a a parlor trick like a fun thing that we're building or is this actually useful and then of course the the secondary problem of like uh can it be turned to evil or can it get lead, lead to bad outcomes so let's start with um let's start with one of them uh let's let's start with the let, let, let's just start with the uh the one like you know why are we building this what the bigger why yeah yeah the bigger why like what um what is this all for? Yeah, like like as a product manager, um, what uh, applications of AI or or uh, do you find particularly compelling? And where have you seen maybe people you know fall into some rabbit holes? Maybe where you know they built some stuff that uh, didn't quite work out um, as uh, as as well as they'd hoped. Yeah, so. I wasn't, I wasn't ready because I'm like, oh, there's like so many <laughs> applications. I know, I know. Um, I would say, yeah. So I would say like the thing that is, we'll talk about like maybe one of the most common applications because I think a lot of people will be able to identify with it and whether it's helpful or, or not, like it is, it is trying to solve a problem. And that is like the ad space, right? Where when it is something that you actually want, you're like, wow, this actually is solving a problem. I actually need this and I actually purchased it. Um, and there are scenarios where you're like, oh, this is actually, you're very saying if, if you find a, you're saying if, if you find a targeted ad, if you find like, a targeted ad, it's actually useful, it's right, actually right. useful. Right. And, and there's this problem of like, obviously it's like before it's like you used to take out a page in a newspaper because you knew that the New York times had this demographic and this kind of thing. And um, you know, so had this many people in these areas and that, that was it. And now they can say, well, okay, yeah, we, we know that this is their demographic, but what if you knew that this person was 34 to 45 and they live in New York city and you can get targeted from there, right? That is, you can actually make sure that your ad is actually better targeted and you're not necessarily having this thing where you're getting sent like your basically your message blasted across a lot of people, which one of the things for the course that I learned is that career things on on social media, like advertising on social media, is actually 
terrible, at least for like what I'm doing, because basically hmm. Facebook got in trouble for, for discriminating against like people of color and women um, for job ads. And so now you have to enter this like very general um, scope of audience. So for those types. Yeah. wait, wait, wait. In, how, how did they, yeah. In what way did they get in trouble? Like what were they doing? They were basically making it so that people could say like, I want like white men from like ages like 28 to 37 to be able to like see this ad. And then you would like exclude certain segments, which if you're maybe selling, I don't know, like some like rock band tea, maybe, maybe that makes sense. But when you're starting to talk about jobs, and you start talking about employment discrimination in the United States, now there's a problem, right? So that's something where Facebook was like, oh, crap, like we legally got in trouble for this. Even the like all we did was just let this person run the ad. The person is the person who technically, you know, put up these these things. But now now it's like, for example, if I say, well, OK, I'm I'm a black woman. I want to target um black women for my, my coaching program. I actually can't do that because my coaching program is career focused. They won't, they won't let me do it. So I get entered into this thing. That's like this mixture of an audience. And also the other thing is, is because I can't target it more. I get people who are, <laughs> I've, it's a, I've complained. Yeah. Oh, I, I haven't been able to, uh, uh, like when I first started the podcast, I tried to like run a few ads on Facebook, you know, nothing, nothing huge, but I, I yeah. ran into similar problems. Like they just would not approve any of my ads for like dumb reasons. Yeah. And I gave up. Yeah. And like when I first started running it, basically because of this weird segment, they put me in, that's just like a mixture of everybody. I basically got people who can't afford the course and are really just desperate for any job at all, which is not necessarily my demographic because I couldn't couldn't hone down on who my segment was. And that's kind of the thing that happens when it's like, you know, before we, we didn't have this option, right. It didn't work for the person who was selling it, but they didn't have any other choice. Right. It was better than not advertising at all, but that conversion rate was a little different, but when you actually can hone down on things, the right people actually can be helped because they get the actual thing that they need. Right. The problem they want to be solved. And then it's like also works for the business owner. But here it comes to this whole, it kind of does feed into the ethics thing because it's kind of like, it does take a lot of data, maybe not as much as they are collecting, but it does take a lot of data for these companies to collect to be able to hone down on those things in the first place. Even if you put aside like the weird segment that Facebook tried to put me in for advertising for my, my coaching program. So. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, um, yeah, so those segment things could get, uh, crazy. I I've done a lot of work with that and the AI ethics field is, um, well, it, it's a mess. Like I could wrap my head around stuff that I've been asked to do for work and I'm like, okay, I don't think this should exist. So let's not work on it. Or I could wrap my head around, okay, we're building, well, a good example is, is way back in the day when I built the four square ratings. I'd be like, okay, I want um, all the businesses to be treated fairly. What would I be worried about if I'm a small business treating unfairly? And how could I how could I fix that when I design that? But when you look at like what's going on in Google and all those uh, all those firing slash resignations and all the stuff they're arguing about, I'm like, I don't get what's going on over there. I I feel like it's just uh, it's. I, sometimes I feel like it's just debate club and it's not uh, real life, <laughs> but I, I don't know. What, what, what do you see there as, as the most important issues these days? I mean, uh, I mean, what is the most important issues? Is, is well, it, I mean, well, I feel like I, let's not, issues. let's not hold on yeah, yeah. The, the way I asked that, like, let's okay. not make it the most important because that puts you on too much okay, pressure, okay. but like, uh, okay. what, what are you thinking about these days? Let's put it that way. I mean, really, I think one of the things, I think a lot about, and I said before, is like, is this inclusivity and it's not just who is the product for and making it all inclusive, but also who is in the room and who actually has the ability to speak up and say, I actually think this, or is actually able to contribute their, their ideas, um, and actually have those ideas heard and implemented. And 
I think that that piece of it, right? Because it's, and I've said this, I've said this on another podcast, but I'll repeat it here where it's, you know, it's kind of problematic if you're like, well, let's think about if I was a black, if you're not a black person, think, well, let's think about if I was a black person, what would I experience as this? Or if I was an Asian American yeah. person, how would I experience? Even you know, though it I, being like, I just did that to, yeah. I just like, did that like to you, small businesses, as I said before. But. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's an really extent to which you know surface level, but when like long term you have no strategy of like, how do you incorporate this? Are you going to, if you can't, for whatever, you're not doing the hiring, are you paying like groups of people? Are you, is this part of your process? So it's not necessarily feels like a dragon business throws it out the window. Is it something that is like in um, a re- like a retention program, if you notice like your, you know, employees, um, you know, disabilities or pe- uh, people of color tend to stay not as long or like those kind of things. Like what specifically are you doing? Because if people don't have like a seat at the table, an equal voice at that table, then it's kind of like you're just having a bunch of the same people kind of like guess based on things they read and heard on the internet. But it's different where it's like you can't possibly like read all the things a person experiences in a single day. Like if you were trying to, if I said like, Hey Max, explain to me like your whole, your, your entire day and everything you perceived and happened to you today, you'd probably just be like, I'm exhausted. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't even want to, I don't want to do that. Right. And, yeah, yeah. and that's the thing is like, <laughs> there's things where we all have our own limitations in which we can actually design for other people. When we think about, I know this is an overused term, like design thinking and that kind of thing. Um, we, we have limitations when we're trying to do that and how we're trying to design for, for others. And that's, and that's one of the things is, um, you know, funnily enough, I think some of this Google stuff was whether it was over that or just tangential to this paper that I think was like how these like larger language models can be harmful to certain people and that kind of thing and exclude people. Um, you know, that was brought to some, like, you know, she is the daughter of immigrants from, I think it's like Ethiopia, right? Um, Timna is. And, you know, you have, and she's a black woman. She was leading like one of the biggest kind of like, a, like, you know, AI, like research departments in the world, or like at least AI, like ethics and that kind of thing. And yeah, it's, it's such a big, it's such, I'll say that is, that, that whole thing is such a mess. And you realize what? you're like, that is, what is one second, um, that she, that you had somebody who actually called this out and would actually understand this because, you know, English is not necessarily, was not necessarily her parents, like first language. And even though I'm sure that they, I don't necessarily, know I, I don't they, think it was hers either. Yeah. And so th- those, that's the thing is like, when you think about like, she would be someone who's an authority on this and you don't even want to like listen to her and then you bully her out of the organization. It's, you know, like how, how are you supposed to build, how are you supposed to build like ethical anything when it's even like somebody who would be a good person to tell you like, Hey, this is how this is going to hurt people and hurt people like me or hurt people like my parents. And you're so caught up in your own organizational politics or threatened by whatever it was in the paper or how she did whatever she did that like, this is, it's like a very public way to be biased and messy. So I think everything you said uh, before applies to like all product development, really Um, not just, not just AI, but is there anything that you could say like AI specific? Because I feel like, um, there's a lot of, I don't know, when you work on a machine learning project specifically, there are always a lot of unknowns because you're not really, um, you're not really in charge of everything that happens (laughs) when you uh, design such a system. Well, one of the things that, um, so she's also a data scientist is Ayodele Odubella is, um, she specifically talks about even just the data sets that you're choosing to use, right? You're able to understand the data that you start with. Like, for example, a lot of facial recognition is mostly trained on, I mean, reality is like white men. Once you go down to women, it's even less accurate. Once you start getting to people of color, even less accurate. And then basically, if you have a very dark woman, it is wildly inaccurate. And 
these are things where it's like, if you understand the data set that you start with is biased and it's like you, somebody has the option to be like, do we need to create a data set? Like we need to be like, we need to go out and get different people's faces. There's one already exists and we need to purchase it or access it somehow. Um, or is it that like, you know, this is a thing where it's like, you need to analyze it and there's a way to, you know, approach it to kind of like take out some of those things. Uh, because like, there's always going to be some level of bias, but not considering that. Right. And even that initial data set, cause it's really, it's, it's again, machine learning, learning, um, you know, it's just what like, what, it's not set? like, are you, yeah, it's not just like, are you learning it? Well, it's, um, you know, what are you, what are you teaching it? And it's not like, Hey, I might be, uh, quote, the data is, quote, teaching the machine the wrong thing. It's just that if it doesn't have enough examples, uh, you know, for for certain Does situations, it, you know, certain populations, it's not going to work as well. Exactly. And then the other problem that you see sometimes is also no way to try to, like, help the model. And this is not obviously not true for all models, but sometimes they build things where it's like there's no way to give the model feedback to kind of, like, help nudge it. Like right. if it gets too far in one direction, nudge it in a different direction. And that, that is also like a, a problem, right? Right. Where if it's saying like, this is this, like, for example, if Google were to tag an image with something like offensive, you need to have a way to report that and say like, actually, this is not this. And this is actually like harmful or like biased or like oh. something like this. As an aside, I just have, so um, we have uh, an Amazon system tagging our, our photos that are coming in on, on Foursquare, and some of the ones that it tags as offensive are hilarious, uh, or like, you know, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, just basically like inappropriate are yeah. totally just um, fine. Let me see if I could find an example here. Hold on, because this is, uh, this is okay, okay. fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can... Yeah. I can also talk through like some, some of the other things where it's like, because some of these systems, there's no way they start with the biased data and then there's not really a way to change or like give new, like basically t say to oh, the yeah. model, like this didn't work out. There, like when you think about that compass recidivism wait, wait. model. Can I just okay, tell you, there's, you there's yeah, like yeah. the last one that came in that I was remember there's it's a picture of a dog who's like on his, on his back, like you rub my belly and it, and it says, uh, uh, photo rejective, subject, suggestive, bare-chested male. <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, I guess the puppy yeah. is a bare-chested male, but not. I technically not <laughs> in the way most humans would perceive that offensive, and that's the thing is like, how do you? Yeah. Like how do you, how do you give that feedback, right? And that's a relatively harmless example, right. but we can see how quickly those things can go out of, like get out of control. And when you think about also like, you know, how many algorithms are being used, you know, in our justice system and in our prison system. And you think the one example people use a lot is that compass um, recidivism model, right? Is that um, when it's, a lot of times people were just like looking at the the output and they were like, oh, this is, this is actually like, yeah, like that person's more likely to recommit a crime. But what they found, it was like, it, was like heavily biased against like black or brown people. But if it actually was being used in combination with a human, the outcomes were actually better and less biased. But here's the thing, right? Is that I'm not saying the compass algorithm should get to a point where it should be used completely by itself, but like, Hold on. why is that? Slow down, like, to, can you explain what compass is? Yeah, so there are companies and they produce this software that tries to predict um, recidivism. Recidivism is like the likelihood that somebody is likely to recommit a crime. So they've been convicted of a crime and they're trying to determine, you know, like what, what should go on? Like, you know, should this person get bail? Like what, what are the next steps? So like, this can actually mean the difference between somebody getting to like go back home with their family and like having to stay in prison. Yeah. Right. Um, prison is a traumatizing place, especially when you think about like how many people are in prison for like, you know, relatively minor offenses. And you even think about now during COVID-19, it's not a place where you want, I mean, you don't want to be there before. You definitely don't want to be there now. And so that model, basically they found that because it's taking in data from our justice system, which we already know is not the most unbiased place to get data from, but like, where are you going to get data? There's not like an alternative universe 
that has like a fair justice system for the United States that you can get data from. Um, and there be, I know there could be things where people could argue like what you could do to it to, to fix that. But here's the other thing is there's also on the other side of it, there's not, there wasn't any input to say kind of like, yeah, we had a human review this and a human disagreed with, with, you know, what the model said. And here's our, our like feedback of like, this was an accurate assessment versus this was an inaccurate assessment. And those are things. So I'm like, the model just kept being like biased and inaccurate. And so it's kind of like the, the data that you feed it on the front end, you have to think about like what that is. And then also like, how do you, how do you help it correct course along the way? Right. So that's, that's another piece of it. And especially right now, there's a lot of things where they still they still relatively need human intervention. And even when you think about um, one example that is going on in AI, that actually, it's a great example. I didn't, it wasn't my first thought in my head, but it's like what they're doing, um, you know, in medicine, right? Because this is changing a lot of healthcare because in combination of, you know, AI looking at these images and deciding like, do you have cancer? Do you have a heart problem? It's actually identifying these things way earlier, especially when you start thinking about things like breast cancer, like that's something you want to find as early as possible, but it can, in combination using the model with an actual human doctor, you can find this way earlier and a lot higher accuracy. But the thing is, is like, that's something where if something started going awry with the model, like you wouldn't want like all these women finding out saying like, oh, you have breast cancer. And then they're like stressed out They're Like there's a lot of stuff that comes with it. There's additional doctor's appointments. So that's additional medical costs. And then it turns out they don't have it. I'm like, I guess that's a relief. You don't have it, but you know, that's, it's a really stressful thing. And, um, not because of an AI model, but that's something that happened to my mom. My mom is a breast cancer survivor and she was actually wrongly told that something weird was going on with her breasts, like years after she, um, you know, went into remission and turns out it was nothing, but you know, it's something where she's like, I don't want to go through this ever again. Her, like her mom, my grandmother died of breast cancer. Her sister got breast cancer twice, lived both times. But you know, though, these are things where I'm like, it's not just like a, Oh, well, you know, this is, this is people's lives. And then the worst part of this is like, okay, what about the flip side? People who have breast cancer are being told you don't have it. You're good. And so this is why, you know, not just using this along with humans, but if there is a need to course correct, like how do you give feedback to this model? Like how do you give it the actual like outcomes? How does it know that that was accurate? And like are and some of these, like they're not, there's not even like a feedback loop, right? It just spits out an answer. People believe it. And Kathy O'Neill talks about this in Weapons of Math Destruction where, you know, people are very quick to be like, the algorithm is smarter than me. So I'm just not going to question the answer it gives me. You know, and that's a dangerous place to be. Hmm. Yeah, I I think that um, uh, th machine learning engineers, uh, you know, data mining, data science, like you're you're taught to kind of build in that feedback loop, but then in practice, it's often um, you know th that's the those are the corners that get cut. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is, and it's not because this is, this is also why I think it's important as a product manager, as a non-developer to speak about this type of thing, because even though people speak about it as an industry thing, I feel, and maybe I'm wrong about this. I hear so much of it talking about, you know, the engineers. And I think there is the engineers need to understand this stuff and they need to learn stuff. And like, there's people where they're like, you, you know, you should take sociology classes and that sort of thing. I think all that's important, but here's the thing. If the product managers who are leading this don't know a thing about tech ethics, don't understand a thing about like the, the data coming in, the data out, things that actually like that don't understand like, oh, your zip code could actually be a really good indicator of like race, socioeconomic status. Like they don't know these things and they're like, well, this is going to help us be able to target X, Y, Z and we're going to make this much money and they're selling this into like the VP of whatever, Right. And that's not that organization's priority, whether it's because they they don't know or they just don't care. Like this is a thing where I think people who are non-engineers aren't being talked to enough about here are the things that you need to know that you need to be aware of. And actually at my day job, um, we just wrapped up Black History Month programming. And as part of our programming, we did a book club for algorithms of oppression. And 
um, by Sophie, by Sophia Noble. And the thing that's always interesting when we do book club for black history month is just like the learnings that come with it. And, you know, we had pe- a lot of people who weren't engineers who were part of that book club and a lot of people who were not black or people of color. And they were like, are you kidding me? Like, this is a real thing that happened and like search engines can do this. And, and that's the thing is we have people where, you know, they work in tech, even if their thing in tech is not necessarily at Google or at Facebook where maybe they're going to end up at a Google or Facebook one day, or they're going to end up at a small little startup that doesn't have the, like, doesn't have the resources to send people to training about this. Right. And these people aren't being talked to that. And they're going to tell the engineer, like, this is what we need you to do. And it's not that I'm trying to take the onus off the engineer, but I'm saying like, as a product manager, it's really important for me to bring these topics up because I feel like this is being like, they're like, I feel like I've talked to people who are not engineers and they're like, I've never heard of this in my entire life. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have seen engineers push back on things, although they um, oftentimes forget that uh, that's an option. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, yeah uh, all right, let's, uh, let's see if we have a few minutes left. Maybe we could talk about uh, blockchain. I'm kind of curious to get your take on that. I noticed on, on your website, you, you write you know, blockchain and not uh, Bitcoin. But what, so what's your, what's your interest in that area? Yeah. So I actually worked in the blockchain space for a bit. I worked at um, a startup in the legal tech space, specifically um, specifically part of the consensus ecosystem. And we worked specifically basically building a lot of the protocols and infrastructure for Ethereum smart contracts, which for those of you who are like, what did the heck did she just say? Um, so in the Ethereum... Okay. We did... Okay. Uh, hold on. I have an episode on that. And well, no, I just like to, uh, it's a little bit tough because of the delay, but uh, in uh, episode uh, five, um, we uh, I, I talked about Ethereum smart contracts, so I just, I like to pepper in the- uh, Excellent. The yes. Reference. Please go Sorry. back and go listen ahead. to that episode. Please go listen to that. Um, <laughs> I highly recommend- It's two years ago already. Yeah. Because it'll also make whatever I'd say next also make more sense. Whereas like the short version okay. is- well, Give us the two sentence. Yeah. Yeah, the two sentences like basically these are automated like contracts where it's like they can basically take the terms of a contract because if you look at contracts, right, a lot of them are if then statements, right? So you look at like if this happens, this is what we're going to do. If that happens, then this is what we're going to do. And basically it turns this contract into this like executable code that basically says especially for things where you can pay automatically in in crypto, they're like, "Yes, if I press this button saying that Max sent me um, this box of chocolates, that like my my crypto that's been in escrow as part of this smart contract is now going to automatically go to Max, right? And like that's a, a whole contract where, you know, we didn't need to go through a bank. It could be directly through crypto and it could automatically like execute itself, um, you know, based on the terms and conditions and like what's what's in there. And so there's certain things where people who are Ethereum was built really to have apps built on top of it. Whereas like something like Bitcoin was built really as a currency and obviously ether is a, is a currency as well, but really like Ethereum has all these, like, you know, these uh, decentralized apps that people build on it. And so those rely on smart contracts. And some people are like, I want to focus on, I have to, I know I have to know about the blockchain, right? I have to have blockchain developers, but I want to focus on building my decentralized app. I'm not trying to build a whole protocol to talk to smart contracts. So that's the space that um, I worked in, but I got to work with a lot of other cool people and other startups um, that were adjacent to us and learn a lot about the blockchain space. And so even though, even though like, I am interested in crypto and that kind of thing. Like I'm also the kind of person to say like, wait, but over here you want to understand why blockchain is important to, to crypto and like specifically like what you can do besides Bitcoin with blockchain, right? Because there's a lot of applications. And one of my favorite things that I've seen, um, there's this company called AgriLedger where they're basically using smart contracts to record things on the blockchain as like these mangoes get sent from like Haiti to the US, like into grocery stores, right? Because you think about our produce, we don't really know a lot about how it got here. Like we could, I could draw you a picture of like how it got from a farm to here, but you know, 
there's no one that's actually really recording through the whole process that has a whole bird's eye view of this is really how much the farmer got paid and what date, this kind of thing. There's no real record of, you know, once this left the farm, you know, when, when did it leave the, what date time did it leave the farm? What type of transport was it in when it was in the big shipping container at the airport? What was the, what were the temperature of the mangoes? What was the temperature of that container? Because do you want something that's sitting in the sun? Like if the air conditioning fails, like, you know, if basically they do things where it's like, if there's a sensor basically that goes off and says, Hey, the air conditioning is broke and it's been sitting at this temperature for this amount of time, it has a sensor go off. So you can actually track these things. And it basically creates this like blockchain record of all these things that number one also end up helping the farmer actually get paid fairly because today the way it works is if you go to like a farmer in some of these places, you know, they don't necessarily know they're going to see that person ever again as a farmer. Like the farmer doesn't know they're going to see the person who's trying to buy their mangoes or whatever ever again. So they just are willing to take a really, really, really small portion of what they're worth in order to just get paid today. But with like the blockchain and all these other records, there are all these things that are actually, you know, timestamps saying like, this is what happened. This is what they agreed to that make it so that, okay, now there's this legally enforceable thing. And I would be able to have recourse if this person never shows up again with my money. So they get a little bit up front, but then they get more later. So, and then it tracks everything. And when you, as the grocery store, are trying to buy these mangoes for your customers, you have the confidence that these mangoes aren't going to go bad the day after you finally put them out. And now you have a bunch of mangoes you have to sell for less than you bought them for that are going to go bad and your customers aren't going to want to buy them. You just waste a ton of money on like these, these mangoes. Right. And so that's one of my favorite applications of blockchain that has nothing to do with crypto. Are these things actually deployed now in, in, in any scale? Uh, because, you know, it sounds really cool, but it's like, how much, how much is this stuff actually being used? Yeah. So it's early days. So these things are being deployed at the scale. Like it's not like every single grocery store is signed on yet. I would say in the blockchain space where I compare it a little bit to the early days of AI, where it's like we went through a few AI winters where, you know, that 2018 crypto crash, even though crypto is crypto and it's only one application of blockchain, it really cooled everybody's interest in blockchain in general because crypto is the fun thing because it's money. And that also went for people's excitement about these, these applications. So I'm starting to see more companies actually purchase and adopt these things. But are we talking um, on a large scale? I think the largest scale we've seen is that um, Walmart has been doing more with the blockchain because they realize that, you know, they actually, a lot of these companies they were buying things from to put on their shelves, those companies actually had no idea how their stuff got to Walmart. And so they actually, Walmart actually started putting things like on the blockchain to try to track. And so that's actually one of the biggest like at scale things, but it's through IBM, right? Which is... I won't get into the whole argument of public versus private blockchain on here. I'm sure Max, you have another podcast about it, or you can yeah. talk to me, me or someone else later about like public versus private blockchains. Well, um, I don't, I don't have public private uh, blockchain on, but I, but I think um, it would be good to to mention like you know one of the big arguments is not not just public and private blockchain, but do we want a blockchain or do we? Can we just do this with our database technology? Like people come up with, or people try to sell you all these applications. And it's like, I, I think the industry is still trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's, what's something that really helps us? And what's just a really yes. complicated ass database? Yeah. And so actually, so I actually um, taught a course on O'Reilly called business applications of blockchain. And that's one of the things I talk about is like, does your, does this actually need to be on the blockchain? Because there are several options where I'm like, you could just have a very complicated, secure database for this. You don't need the blockchain. Right. And if you're doing something where like, like Bitcoin makes sense because they're trying to do this whole trustless thing and they don't want to have anything centralized. They yeah. don't trust the banks. They don't trust the corporations. There's other things where people, there's people who would argue you know, if you need a, a private blockchain like the IBM is using, they're like, you just need a database and you can debate depending on specific project, um, you know, whether you need that or not. But that's the thing is there are, I think there's less so now, but especially around 2017 to 2018, literally anybody and everybody was just saying, yeah, we use blockchain technology 
because you could just get funding. People were just throwing money at it. I think there's slightly less now than there was then because the fervor around that time was so high. But then after a few too many people got scammed by IPOs, I think we were losing like nine, nine million, possibly billion. I'll check on that. But I think like at least nine million dollars a day to I, <laughs> like IPO scams um, in 2017. And so I think people are a lot more wow. wear, wary about it. Um, now and they're starting to actually understand I mean, the, the ICO. The ICO, sorry. Um, my brain is like switching, switching yeah, con- context, right. switching. But yeah, <laughs> ICO scams, and you know, so I think I think now there's still people who are selling in things that really don't necessarily need to be on the blockchain, but they're like, I'm excited about this technology and I'm doing stuff. And I think you know, there's probably things in the early days of AI that, for where AI was at that time, probably didn't need to be solved with AI, with what AI could do at that time, but it helped move things forward. Right. So I think there are some of these projects that probably don't need to use blockchain, but once some of these things um, are more robust or at least faster, because especially when we talk about public blockchains, like this consensus model, where it basically verifies all the transactions, it's very slow. We're talking about distributed systems. Like everything has, all the nodes have to agree. Right. So um, something that is much slower. And when you think about how fast our internet is today, people don't like waiting around for, for the computer to like agree, like, oh, this, this transaction went through, or this, this finally happened. Right. So there's the average consumer. It's not, I would say it's not ready for like the average, average consumer, but the early adopters are clearly very excited. Right. Well, well, the early adopters are certainly getting in on. Well, you know, people have been in in, in Bitcoin for for a while. It's kind of going mainstream. I mean, maybe not mainstream in terms of like people buying and selling with it, but like um, it's in more people's portfolios, maybe directly or either indirectly through a, a company that you own. Um, but uh, you know, I, I did an episode recently about NFTs, the non fungible tokens, and I'm still doing research on it. I asked a lot of questions about whether these things have any use and i suspect some of them do and some of them don't uh because and you know some of these questions are tough to answer like hey are are you really going to get paid every time this piece of art is is used and you know there's no guarantee on the blockchain that that's going to happen like bitcoin has a guarantee but that doesn't that's just going to be you just kind of have to trust it, people so um have you looked into those at all I've looked a little bit into them. I'll be honest. I can't speak a lot to them. I would, if, if for people who are listening, who are interested in learning more, like Tanya Evans, um, she's a, um, she's a professor, I think it's at Dickens, Dickinson School of Law, um, UPenn. Um, she, she has several conversations you can find on the internet, um, specifically talking about NFTs. I know the Kings of Leon, like just released that they're going to have like an NFT album, which I haven't looked oh. too deep into how that is specifically, going to work, but it is something like, um, I've actually talked to Tanya Evans about recently in terms of there, there are uses, I think, especially when we talk about certain things, um, you know, when we talk about like, is there a digital representation of something like the Mona Lisa that makes sense? But in terms of like wider adoption, I think it will be a thing, but will it be taking over every thing that is a unique thing, like every album or that kind of thing? I don't, I don't necessarily know because here's the thing. Um, I've seen I've seen startups that want to focus on the solving the problem of getting artists paid using the blockchain and seeing like every time somebody does this, they they make sure the artist gets paid and you can cut out some of the, you know, the the big music business companies or um, you know, recording companies. And the thing is is that again, and we're talking about a public blockchain, it's it's slower than normal. Maybe the music isn't necessarily the thing on the blockchain. It's just that, hey, you access this album. Um, but there's there's things where it's going to have to like register that like, oh, okay, this person is accessing the NFT or trying to transact. And does the, and does the average consumer, they say they want artists to get paid, but does the average consumer really care that much about that, right? The average consumer's real problem is that they are just trying to listen to music and they want it now and they want music that is the music they like. Right. And so if Spotify tomorrow said, yeah, we're going to change everything over into this blockchain system and we're going to make sure all the artists get, get paid, um, I think people would like the sound of it. It would be really cool for marketing. But in terms of actually using the actual product, 
I'm not sure they actually care. And that's one of the things that's going on now where blockchain sounds really cool and it might be a cool marketing tactic, but the reality is you have to ask yourself, does, do your specific customers and users care about that thing? And, or if they don't care, does this give you some sort of advantage in another way that it doesn't matter that your customers don't care because it actually like makes things work better or run better or solve some other problem that maybe the customer doesn't that happens behind the scenes, the customer doesn't see, they just know that it works really well. Right. And I think that's the thing is like, as a product manager, that's what I think about is like, does my specific customer care about this thing? And that's the other problem with some of these blockchain startups is like some of the things, especially when they're more consumer facing, you're going to have trouble scaling at the rate that you know, VCs and some of these other like investors want you to scale because you don't have enough customers that necessarily care about the problem you're solving because your customers don't care about, oh, it's cool because it's on blockchain and your customers don't care that, I mean, I hate to say this, they, they don't care that, you know, the artist gets paid. They say they do, but when we look at the numbers, like how many people use Spotify versus doing other methods or that kind of thing, people don't. Mm. Right. So I think that's one of the things I think maybe eventually we can get to a system where they're like, oh, this works and it's not inconvenient. Um, You know, but until we get to a place where like things are robust enough where it's works, it's not slow, it's not inconvenient. um, And it's just part of a thing that makes it better. Right. Then they'll care more. It's kind of like AI, like how like 10 years ago. Right. I think some people knew this, but a lot of your average consumer probably didn't think about. So when I first got into. What? Oh, that was when I first got into it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whereas your average person probably wasn't thinking like, oh, AI is going to help me find all the coolest music. Right. That's not a thing where if you tried to market that 10 years ago or be like, this is an advantage. And especially with where AI was 10 years ago, like, I don't, I don't know. People would have like cared like that, that much, but like, obviously you know, in the last like X amount of years, being able to like Spotify has so many algorithms, right. And they're able, they have like so many data scientists and that's something where they can now say, yeah, like we like not only can give you the music that you want, but we also, if you need to advertise here, we have a really great idea of who these people are and what they want and the type of music demographic they listen to. And, and so those are things where it's some of this is, is not just, it's not that I'm necessarily just criticizing like, oh, this is a bad idea. It's that like, sometimes your idea is again, like wrong place, wrong, wrong time, or it's like the right place, wrong time. You know, there's, there's a lot of things to consider there. Yeah. Well, that's the billion dollar question for, um, for basically content creation and making sure that, uh, that artists get, um, get compensated and what's the model for that? Uh, uh, that's, uh, that would be a, a lot to get into. I think this is a good time to, uh, to, to wrap up, but, uh, and thanks for coming on the show. I, I could already tell from my notes, there are going to be a, a ton of links on the show notes page for this show. Uh, but tell me where, tell me where, uh, we can find, you know, you, your website and some of your courses and, uh, tell me if you have any, uh, last uh, parting words after today's conversation. Yes. So if you want to find me more on the AI blockchain side, you can find me at antgriffin.com. So that's A-N-N-E-T-G-R-I-F-F-I-N.com. That's also where you can contact me. I'm also on Twitter at antgriffin. And if you're looking for my, um, my coaching program that basically helps you attract your dream job, you can go to attractdreamjob.com. Dot com or follow me on basically Instagram or Twitter at Pivot Girl Hustle. All right. And thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, it was great being here. Thank you for having me. All right. That was great. Next week on The Local Maximum, I'm going to be talking to Peter McCormick of the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is a very fun Bitcoin podcast uh, that's out there these days, uh, uh, doing a lot of big work. And uh, it, the, the, definitely stay tuned for that if you uh, if you want another Bitcoin discussion and blockchain discussion, as I'm sure you all do. You know, even if you don't, this is, it's going to be great. So tune in next week. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and their online community at maximum.locals.com. 
The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.